All right, the plan is, uh, Lord willing, we will next Thursday night uh, return to our ongoing study in, on uh, Christ in the Old Testament and uh, begin the next section of that study. But for tonight, I've got a second open study linked to the one we did last Thursday night. Um, the question I answered, I only had time to answer one question, one because it was a big question or a big answer to a big question, and then two is because it required a certain kind of setup in order to understand uh, the conclusion I was teaching, and that was from chapter 11, which had to do with the identity of the two, the key figures, the two witnesses in uh, Revelation 11. Tonight we're going to be in chapter 13, and I'm going to try to answer three questions, but again, I do want to just briefly review the setup that I did last time, because this setup... Uh, applies just as much to what we'll be studying tonight as it did to what we studied last week. And so uh, starting in Revelation 1, before we go to chapter 13, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things must, which must or that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, um, just looking out over the wider body of Christ, this is true primarily in this nation, but it's also true throughout the world. At this particular moment in history, in the history of the church, if we were to um, just kind of add up all of the different teaching voices that have tackled trying to explain and, uh, and interpret the book of Revelation, what we would find, and you've heard me emphasize this before, is there is a predominant viewpoint at this particular time in history. That predominant viewpoint is is described two ways. It's known as the futurist view, and it's known as the dispensational view. Futurist simply means that all of the events of the book of Revelation, other than chapter 2 and 3, which were letters written to churches in existence that the, at the time that John was uh, writing the letter, all of the rest of the information, chapter 1 and then chapters 4 all the way through to 19, have to do with events in not John's day, but in a far distant future fulfillment time, uh, the belief being that these are events still in our future today, that these, these things that are being symbolically described in the book of Revelation have not yet occurred and are still waiting for us to experience in the future. And most of those that hold to that view believe that the, the fulfillment of those events is in the very near future to where we are today. For instance, with the whole thing that's just exploded recently with, with uh, the Palestinians invading Israel and then Israel responding by um, invading or getting prepared to invade Gaza, all of that stuff, uh, some of the most prominent dispensational teachers have already come out and said, this is... This is the beginning of the fulfillment of the events that are going to lead to the circumstances we read about in the book of Revelation. I do not hold that viewpoint. I don't hold that perspective. 
I did, as a brand new believer, the very first viewpoint I ever was taught about Revelation is this futurist dispensational perspective. And I embraced it because as far as I knew, this is what all Christians are supposed to believe about this. But it's uh, through years of my own study of the book and then um, studying every uh, acceptable viewpoint because there are just some weird viewpoints about Revelation that, that no solid uh, believer should ever ascribe to. But there, as I introduced last week, there are four basic ways to interpret the book of Revelation throughout church history. And so I've studied all four of those, and I'm convinced of the, the one that I listed as fourth, which is the preterist view or the partial preterist view having to do with a past fulfillment of these events, meaning that I view the book of Revelation other than the end of the book, which clearly is talking about eternity to come. Other than that, all of the events that are being described in the book of Revelation have to do with events that are going to be fulfilled leading up to the climactic event of the uh, reconquest of the city of Jerusalem by the Roman uh, armies, by the Roman Empire, and the destruction of the temple, and then the, um, the essentially death, the final climactic death of what we call the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant had come to an end technically and actually at the Last Supper when Jesus introduced to his disciples by giving them bread and wine and saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. As soon as he introduced the new covenant, it overwrote, like in a computer code, the old covenant. The new covenant supplants the old covenant. God is moving from one covenant relationship with people to a new covenant relationship with people. But uh, in, in terms of, of uh, that viewpoint, there are reasons why, as we read the book of Revelation, um, I believe that it's the only viewpoint that ultimately fits this particular, um, this particular uh, way of, of describing these events. So I had us reread these first three verses because of these two key phrases that I emph emphasized last time. Uh, in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. Now, I can't tell you how many interpretive gymnastics the futurist viewpoint Bible teachers apply to the word soon in order to stretch soon to anything other than soon. Because in their viewpoint, John wrote this thinking in his mind and heart under inspiration of the Spirit of God that these events are not going to take place soon, no matter what, they're going to take place 2,000 years in the future, far distant future. But what John says, and he says it in a simple, straightforward way, is that these events are soon going to take place. I am convinced that he was talking about events in his near future. And um, the, the timing, and this is a whole study unto itself that I won't have time to veer off into, the timing of the writing of the book of Revelation is he wrote it in the mid-60s. You'll hear other viewpoints that say, no, he wrote it in the mid-90s. They're in error. He did not write it at that late date. He wrote it in the mid-60s, and he was writing about events that were literally just about to happen. And then in verse 3, he doubly emphasizes the same concept. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. 
And blessed are those who hear. Now, who, who was it that was hearing? People that were alive at that time, that knew the Lord, that followed the Lord, first century Christian believers. Blessed are those people who hear this and who keep what is written in it for the time is near, meaning it was, it was first and foremost and, and, and in a very dramatic way going to apply to their life circumstances. So I'm convinced that the entire book of Revelation is really addressing issues having to do with the events of what we know as 70 AD. Now at the end of the book, we also looked last week, I won't take us and reread it, but it's in chapter 22. You can read it in your own time and then link it with um, chapter 12 of the book of Daniel as we link those two verses. At the end of Daniel's prophecy, the Lord instructs Daniel and says, I've given you all these visions. I've given you this prophecy. Write them on a scroll. And when you write them on a scroll, seal the scroll for the time of fulfillment is not yet. So Daniel was writing about events 600 years before their fulfillment. And the Lord said to him specifically, seal the scroll because it does not apply to your generation. It won't even apply to the generation after you or the generation after them. It will apply, he didn't say these words, but it will apply 600 years from then. But at the end of the book of Revelation, the Lord tells John the exact opposite message. The exact opposite of what he said to Daniel. He said to Daniel, seal it up because it has to do with 600 years in the future. He tells John, do not seal up the words of this prophecy for the time is near. So if it was to be a 2,000 year in the future fulfillment, it would have been sealed just like Daniel's prophecy was sealed. So with that, that key element of how our interpretation should be set in a framework of a chronology that the Lord has already clearly identified, the near future to when John wrote these words, let's head over to chapter 13 and tackle some challenging questions. I won't take time to read the whole chapter. It's uh, 18 verses. But in this chapter, there's some very famous elements. Uh, the elements are... At the end of the chapter, the number 666, that's found in verse 18. This calls for wisdom, that the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So we're going to try to answer the question, what does the number 666 from Revelation 13, 18 mean? Second question, who is the beast? in Revelation 13 verses 1 through 10 because we're told here in verse 18 that the number of the beast, the 666 number, is the number of a man. So who is this man beast that's being identified? And then the third question from also from chapter 13, what is the mark of the beast which is mentioned in verses 16 and 17? Let me read those verses. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This is the portion that is 
famously referred to as the mark of the beast. All right, so those are our three questions. What's the 666 number about? Who is the beast? What's the identity of the beast? And what is the mark of the beast? So I'm going to be tackling all three questions, remembering Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and remembering Revelation 22 in its contrast to Daniel chapter 12. So I'm going to keep in mind the time framework of fulfillment, and I'm going to be looking for answers in the first century before 70 AD. Uh, most of you have been exposed, some of you a lot exposed, to the, the predominant view, the futurist view, the dispensational view. I'll just briefly describe this chapter from the dispensational viewpoint. In the dispensational viewpoint, this is... Like I say, I don't know what the exact numbers, but maybe 75% of the wider body of Christ currently holds the dispensational perspective of understanding this chapter. In that viewpoint, what's being described is a beast figure who is identified by them as the Antichrist, as single, brilliant, yet evil individual who's going to rise to power in the earth during a time of great turmoil and trouble. And he is going to present himself as the one who has the answer to all the world's problems. For instance, again, using the current thing going on in the Middle East, um, you know, our president just flew over there. Did he provide any answers? No, he didn't provide any answers. Why? Because he doesn't have any answers. He doesn't know any answers. He can't, he can't figure this out. It's a problem that's been going on for thousands of years. And even better, previous presidents haven't been able to figure it out. But according to this scenario, the Antichrist is going to show up and he finally will have the answers. And so the whole world is going to kind of like come in and recognize him as you are the hero of this critical moment in history uh, you know, they're going to elevate him to a great position of power and authority. And then only after he receives that authority is it going to be exposed or revealed his true character, his true nature, which is this devilishly, demonically wicked individual who is trying to take over the entire world in a, in a kind of satanic takeover of the political system of the world. And then as he does that, um, he is going to require everyone to show their allegiance to him by taking a mark on their forehead or the back of their hand. When I was, uh, when I was a young believer, the, the, the popular dispensational answer to that was that it was going to be a, um, a barcode placed on the back of the hand, the right hand, or on the forehead, or both. Uh, why a barcode? You know what a barcode is, right? Everybody knows what a barcode. You go to the grocery store, yeah. you scan your product, and you know it, there's this set of lines on the product or on the packaging of the product, and the computer recognizes that, that set of lines. And each product has its own unique set of lines. But what is um, similar in all the barcodes is it's three sets of six lines. Now, the lines are different lengths, and the computer somehow... Uh, interprets that as specific information for that product. And I, I don't even know how that works. But I will just say the barcode is actually a set of six lines, a second set of six lines, and a third set of six lines. 
And so the, the dispensationalists, when the barcode became really prevalent in buying and selling, the dispensationalists said, well, that's what's going to happen. Each person is going to get a barcode uh, tattooed, you know, laser tattooed on their forehead and on the back of their hand. And unless they have that, that barcode tattoo, they won't be able to buy or sell. They'll be an outcast from society. That's the mark of the beast. And then um, the beast himself was identified as uh, having a number, 666, and um, while the barcode was, was affiliated with that concept um, by most dispensational teachers, they also came up with their own inventive ideas of trying to uh, identify before this person was revealed to be the Antichrist. Now, let me just give you a short list of, of different people that dispensationalists have identified as the coming Antichrist. Of course, in every one of these cases, except the last name that I mentioned, every one of these has died and passed on into eternity. So we can confidently say what about them? They were not the Antichrist, right? Uh, the last one, there's still the, at least the theoretical possibility, but trust me, I'm not recommending that you hold that view. Um, one, this was really popular, but way before barcodes, back in the, uh, the time of the Reformation when uh, Protestant churches broke off from the Roman Catholic Church, who do you think the Protestant church leaders wanted to identify as the Antichrist? The Pope. The Pope. That was the, the number one interpretive uh, conclusion about who the Antichrist will be. It's going to be the Pope because the Pope is this evil figure that kind of um, you know, rules over the, the religious world and um, you know, wants everybody to only approach God in their way, that kind of thing. Um, that's kind of fallen out of favor in more modern times. Um, another big one was Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler's the Antichrist. During, during World War II and the build-up to World War II, a lot of dispensational teachers uh, held to the Hitler is clearly the Antichrist viewpoint. Uh, then, um, do you remember Mikhail Gorbachev? Some of you older ones remember him. He was the, he was the, I forget what they called it, but he was the head of, of the USSR. Um, and do you remember what was the distinctive physical feature about Gorbachev? He had kind of a, a, a blood, you know, a red, vibrant red birthmark. And there's some wording here in chapter 13 that I just won't have time to get into tonight. But talking about the Antichrist having a, or they claim, talking about the Antichrist having a head wound. And so they said, it's, it's Gorbachev because he's evil, he's ahead of the USSR, and he's got this red birthmark on his head which looks like he was wounded in the head. So that's clearly the Antichrist. And then Gorbachev died and, you know, you can't call him that anymore. Uh, Ronald Reagan, of all people, was claimed to be the coming Antichrist by a lot of dispensational teachers. Why? Because... He has, this was his full name, Ronald Wilson Reagan. How many letters in each one of those names? Six. So because of the spelling of his name, and he was this gregarious world leader that seemed like a good guy, but later it'll be revealed he's really evil, and he's going to take over the world. And look at his name, Ronald Wilson Reagan. That's got to be the Antichrist. And of course, that idea crashed and burned when Reagan finally passed away. Um, Barack Obama, Barack Hussein Obama is a, 
a popular one among uh, many dispensational uh, speculations about the identity of the Antichrist. All right, so, and I could, listen, I just gave you a small sampling. There are literally dozens of names that have been put forth by this viewpoint of trying to interpret the book of Revelation by looking at newspaper headlines or internet headlines and say, okay, now we know who the Antichrist is going to be. What's the problem with all of that? Here's, there's so many problems, but here's the biggest one. Where in Revelation chapter 13 is Antichrist mentioned? And the answer is, the word's not in Revelation chapter 13. It's not there at all. Well, they say, well, yeah, but the beast is the Antichrist. John never says that. John is well familiar with the word Antichrist because he's the only New Testament writer that ever used the word. Now, David uh, took us through 1st, 2nd, 3rd John not too long ago and emphasized this for us. So I'm, I'm just going to tag on to what he had to say. But the only four places in the entire Bible where the word Antichrist is mentioned in, are in the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. That's the only place you can find them, those four mentions, period. They're, interestingly, the same guy that wrote those letters wrote the book of Revelation, and Antichrist is never once mentioned in the book of Revelation. Why? If it's such an important personage, the reason is, is because Antichrist is not a personage. Antichrist is a false teaching that undermines the essentials of the faith in regards to the true identity of Christ. And it is true that if you embrace that false teaching, John says, you become like an Antichrist. But he said in his own writing in 1 John, even now there are how many Antichrists? Many Antichrists. That means we're not supposed to be looking for one single individual and tagging them with the title Antichrist. It's anyone who believed this false religious concept about the true identity of Christ. So if we don't have an Antichrist figure in this chapter, who do we have? We have a beast figure. So who is the beast? And again, I'm just going to narrow it down to we're looking for a first century pre-70 AD fulfillment. John is writing this, as I said, somewhere around mid-60s in the first century. So lots and lots of speculation, but I'll just give you the simple answer. The true answer of who the beast is, it's Nero, who was an emperor in the first century of the Roman Empire. His title was Caesar Nero. He was the emperor all the way through to the build-up to 70 AD. He died in 68 AD. Another emperor took his place, which I'll refer to in a moment, and completed the conquest in 70 AD, actually. But Nero is the one that is being described here in this chapter. Now, there's several reasons for this conclusion, but let me give you the, the, the straightforward, simple way to understand this first, this first clue that's given to us. And again, this is, look down at the very last verse of the chapter 18. This calls for wisdom. Now, when the writer stops and says, this calls for wisdom, what is he telling you? He's giving you a hint. He's giving you a heads up. He's saying, you won't be able to understand what I'm about to say unless you apply principles of biblical wisdom to your consideration. Trust me, 
the people that concluded it was Ronald Wilson Reagan were not applying principles of biblical wisdom to their consideration, right? So this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man. So now we know the beast is a man. And he has a number associated with his name. And it can be, and by the believers reading this, should be, the first hearers of this in the first century, should be able to be calculated to arrive at a singular conclusion. The number, it is the number of man, and his number is what? 666. Now, if I made a contract with you and said, look, I want to buy something from you. How much are you selling it for? And you, you wrote back. Let's say we're doing the, the negotiation by email. You wrote back and said to me, I'll sell it to you for 666 right after a dollar sign. How much do you think, or how much should I think you're asking me to pay you for this transaction to be completed? 600 and $66. It's one single amount, one single number. It's not three sixes in some way disconnected and separated from each other like in a barcode, right? Number one, there were no barcodes prior to 70 AD. That should be an easy one for us to conclude. But even so, to, to arrive at a sequence of sixes is completely misreading the point of the text. This is about a single number, and the number is 666. Why is that significant? The, the, the Hebrew language and the Greek language, and those are the two languages, of course, that we, uh, we know were the source languages for Scripture. All of the Old Testament with the exception of a few verses, all of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and all of the New Testament, with the exception of a, of a couple of verses, was written in Greek. And this, this principle is true for both Hebrew and Greek. They bo both of those languages had a, a connection between their alphabet and their numerical system known as gematria, all right? And what that simply means is that the letters also represented a number and those numbers correspond to specific letters. So the name Caesar Nero in Hebrew, according to the Hebrew system of the connection between the numbers and the letters, just take a wild guess, the name Caesar Nero works out to exactly what number? Wild guess. 666 in Hebrew. Now, the Greek works out in exactly the same way. You end up with Caesar Nero as the answer, whether you're reading it in Hebrew or whether you're reading it in Greek. And so the idea here is that the people that were alive in that day knew about this number-letter connection 
This is why he gives them the heads up in, at the beginning of verse 18. This is going to require wisdom and this is going to require understanding to be able to put this. It's kind of like a, a spiritual riddle. It's a spiritual mystery and you have to be able to make that connection and see how that is connected. And yet that's exactly how it works out. Now the truth is um, we can take the names um, the Pope, Hitler, Gorbachev, Ronald Reagan, and Obama and none of them work out that way. Why? Because none of them were originally written in either Hebrew or Greek. And there is in English, for instance, for at least for uh, Ronald Reagan and for uh, Obama, and as far as Gorbachev, it would apply to Russian, and as far as Hitler, it would apply to German. None of them have a, uh, a number letter correspondence in the way that both the Hebrew and the Greek did. So the 666 uh, is a clue pointing specifically to uh, Nero Caesar. Now, here's a, uh, here's a really interesting detail of, and this isn't in our text, but this is true in the history of understanding how original uh, copies of the, um, the book of Revelation, and which were the later translated into various languages, how they... Um, how they created kind of a interesting variation on this number 666. In almost all of the manuscripts, when you get to, to uh, Revelation chapter 13, verse 18, the number that you find in the text is the number we have in our text, 666. But there are a few translations in the history of manuscript transmission down through uh, the generations where the number that shows up in the text is not 666 at all. There's a few translations where the number is 616. And you might say, okay, well then how can we really know if we don't even know if the number is 666 or 616. What's really super interesting about that, at least to me, is that the Latin spelling, and of course, what nation was invading the city of Jerusalem in order to destroy the temple in the events of 70 AD, and who is Nero, the emperor of? Which, which empire? The Roman Empire. What language did they speak? Latin. The Latin translation or the Latin spelling of Nero Caesar, when you translate it into Greek, which is all of the manuscripts eventually ended up in Greek, is 616 in the text. So what, what most scholars who have studied this carefully conclude is that that was an intentional change in a few of the manuscripts to show by the exceptions that whether you take 666 or 616, Nero is the one that's in view. He's the one that's in focus. He's the one that's being mysteriously identified by John in the passage for those who have the wisdom and understanding to reach that conclusion. All right, so that was our first question. What does the number 666 from Revelation 13, 18 mean. I believe it is a, a, a kind of a spiritual hint uh, for those who have the, uh, the heart and the mind to work it out with wisdom that the true identity of this beast figure is, um, is Nero. All right, second question. Who is the beast in Revelation 13, one through 10? Now I don't have time or I won't take time to read the entire 10 verses, but let's read the beginning here in verse, for, let's just read the first, uh, 
First two verses. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems. Diadems are simply crowns of authority, kingdom crowns, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon, the dragon we learn in the previous chapter of Revelation, chapter 12, the dragon is clearly an image, a symbol of Satan and his influence over the rulers of the earth. And to it, to the beast, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Now from verse 3 through to verse 10, some additional details, and I'll touch on a couple of these in a moment. Some additional details about the the beast is uh, presented. So um, again, the dispensational viewpoint says this is the Antichrist figure. And then when we get down to verse 11, and I won't have time for this question tonight, uh, but verse 11 introduces a second or another beast. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. And um, it points to the first beast and causes people to worship the first beast. This is what I was taught as a brand new dispensational young believer, just you know, uh, kind of wide open to, I have no idea what any of this stuff means. Teach me and the dispensational teachers taught me this, that the first beast is the antichrist figure and the second beast was, uh, and, and I don't think this thing is even still in existence, but it did exist in 1979 when I first was reading about this stuff as a brand new believer. The second beast, according to them, was a supercomputer in the nation, the modern day nation of Belgium. Now, how do we get to a supercomputer in the modern day nation of Belgium? Well, there was in 1979, a supercomputer in Belgium and the people that managed and maintained that supercomputer. And you understand that when we say supercomputer, hold on a second. This is a computer that filled an entire building back then in Brussels, Belgium. And the computing power is less than this device I'm holding in my hand today. It was a supercomputer for those days, but this iPhone has more computing power and, and, and computes things faster than that computer ever could using a whole building's worth of space for it. Anyway, that computer was nicknamed by the people that maintained it, take a guess, the beast. And so these dispensational guys, they're like, oh yeah, that fits so perfectly because the computer is gonna be needed to do the tattooing on the forehead the keep track of all the barcodes and who is identified in those barcodes. And we've got a supercomputer here in Europe. Why was that important? Because the 10 horns, according to them, back in verse um, one, and the 10 crowns on the 10 horns was a European um, kind of confederation of nations. 10 European nations are going to come together in the future, and they are going to be the, the basis 
for the activities of the beast. He's going to take over the world by first taking over these 10 European nations. So we've got a supercomputer called the beast, which is the second beast, right there in the European nation, one of the 10 European nations. And then that beast will cause everybody to worship the, the first beast. So you understand, I, I'm just laying out what literally, I, you know, I can show you books from my library that I have kept just for this purpose that have that information in it. That's not what this is talking about. We're still looking at something that's going to happen soon to the days of John, something where the time is near for its fulfillment to the day of John, something leading up to 70 AD time of John. So what are we talking about? Um, Let's go back for just a moment. Keep your place. We'll come back to Revelation 13. And this, gosh, this study, go back to Daniel uh, chapter seven. This study we did in detail. I think we did almost 100 studies going through the book of Daniel in detail together, but it was 10 years ago. So I don't expect anybody to remember uh, the details of what we covered. And... What you'll find if you study Daniel and study Revelation carefully is there's a lot of correspondences between the two books. Because in a lot of cases, they're both describing the same events. They're both describing the same circumstances. One, 600 years before it happened. The other, literally just a handful of years before they happened. But let's look at chapter 7 just to get the flavor of what we're looking for in, in Revelation 13. I'm going to read just the first uh, six, seven, eight verses of Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his head of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and... Four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like, and then he goes on. The second was like, then he goes on. And the third was like, and the fourth was like. And what we, and I'm, I'm going to compact this all just for the sake of time. What this is all describing corresponds to a previous vision that the Lord had not given directly to Daniel, but to King Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter 2. So King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had this, this, this life-troubling dream that he didn't understand and he couldn't rightly interpret. And he called for all of the wise men of his kingdom and they were clueless. And then the Lord gave Daniel understanding of the dream. And beyond that, the Lord gave him knowledge of what the king had actually dreamed without the king telling him. And he told the king, this is what you dreamed and this is what it means. Do you remember what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was about? It was about a giant statue. And that giant statue had four sections to it. And they were described in their differences as four different metals and corresponding to four different parts of a human body. So it was a head of gold. It was shoulders and arms of silver. It was a midsection of, of um, bronze and then legs of iron and the feet of the legs, iron mixed with clay. And what we discovered in our study is that those course, that, that image, that giant image, 
corresponds to the concept of the kingdoms of man set against the kingdom purpose of God. And that they were specifically in the four segments of the statue, four great world dominating empires of history, one succeeding the other immediately. The first, the head, the head of gold was the kingdom of Babylon. The second, the, um, the shoulders and arms of silver had to do with a, a double kingdom, Medeo-Persia, which then later became a single kingdom, the, the kingdom of Persia. And then the, the, what happened was the Persian empire conquered the Babylonian empire. And then the Persian empire itself was conquered by the Greek empire, the midsection of bronze under Alexander the Great. And then Alexander the Great's kingdom after he died was eventually conquered by the Roman Empire, signified by the, the legs of iron and the feet of iron mixed with clay. Why have I gone through all of that? These four beasts that arise out of the sea are corresponding to the four parts of that statue. The first beast that's described is Babylon. The second beast that's described is Persia. I'm talking about here in chapter 7 now. The third beast that's described is Greece. And the fourth beast that's described is the Roman Empire. Why is that significant in terms of Romans 13? I mean, now Revelation 13, it's because the Roman Empire was the one that was bringing about the fulfillment of the events of John's prophecy. So let's just read that last one. Verse 7 is the fourth beast. After this, I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful. This is Rome, the Roman Empire, and exceedingly strong. How strong was it? It was stronger than all of the preceding three empires. Rome at the time was the greatest empire that the world had ever seen. It, it just literally smashed every empire that ever stood against it. It had great iron teeth. The iron teeth is similar to the iron legs of the, of the, um, of the statue. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, meaning that all the beasts that were before it, all the empires that were before it, they, they established themselves as a world-dominating empire, but they also allowed a great deal of freedom for all of the lands that they had conquered. Rome was completely the opposite. They conquered people, and then they said, you are now Roman whether you like it or not, and you're going to do things the Roman way. So it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had 10 horns. Now, in Revelation 13, the beast, which is identified with this beast, is a beast with 10 horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And then it goes on to give uh, more information until we get down to uh, verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And then as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, meaning this the, the end of this beast is the end of this world domination, and it's a downward hill uh, or a downward slide for um, the existence of these beasts from this point forward. All right, so what we're talking about here, let's head back to Revelation 
13. And I know I'm giving you a lot of connected things. I just don't have time to go into much more detail than I am. Um, let's look at some of the details. Uh, let's see, verse, let's start in verse um, 5. And the beast was given a mouth. This is Revelation 13, 5. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. That's described in the, in the Daniel prophecy as well. The haughty and blasphemous words were that um, the Roman Empire at this time in history, uh, the Roman emperor began to proclaim himself to be a divine figure. And emperor worship was introduced to the world for the first time. He was, you know, you're to... to to recognize me and my role as Emperor Rome is to recognize a God in your midst. That's, that's blasphemous um, self-description. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Uh, 42 months is a, a key amount of time. We, we addressed it last time. It's exactly three and a half years. It's exactly 1,260 days. And it's, of course, 42 months. Um, what it's going to be describing here in the next few verses is that this beast is going to make war with the saints. In fact, let's look at, uh, where do we find that phrase? Somebody help me. War with the saints here. It's somewhere here in chapter 13. Okay, verse 7. Oh, yeah, thank you. Um, also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and so conquer them. The saints here are the believers. And during the time of Nero Caesar was the beginning of the first great wave of persecution. Now, there had been a persecution, which we'll get to eventually in our, in our study when we get back to the book of Acts. There was a persecution early in the book of Acts that the church endured and experienced that was a scattering persecution that caused the church to leave the city of Jerusalem for the first time. But that was not a worldwide persecution, and it was not a persecution unto death for the most part. Nero was famous because... Of course, what happened was there was this great fire in Rome, which uh, was mostly by people in the know blamed on the actions of Nero himself. And there's the famous uh, imagery and literature of Nero fiddling while Rome was burning. We don't know if he actually was fiddling while the city was burning, uh, but the point is he was he was being blamed for this 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 capital city engulfing fire that nearly destroyed the entire city of Rome. And in order to get the attention off of himself, he needed, he needed a target for the, the um, hatred of the people. And so he placed the target on this new religious movement that was rising in the city known as Christianity. And this began the great persecution, the first great persecution of the church. And that persecution lasted exactly Take a wild guess, 42 months. It lasted exactly three and a half years. So Nero did things as wicked and evil as holding garden parties in his palatial gardens outside of his palace. And because they were nighttime parties, they needed light for the parties. He um, had believers tied to poles covered in tar and lit on fire while they were still alive in order to light his garden party. And so the, the Roman uh, you know, higher-ups were all celebrating and drinking and carousing 
while Christians were burning alive, literally feet away from them. That's the depth and the degree of the depravity being described here in the War on the Saints. So um, there, are, there are other details as well, but the bottom line is the Beast of Revelation is a, uh, it's a, it's a double image that points to the same thing. The double image is it points in one sense to the Roman Empire as a whole, and in another sense it points to specifically the head of the Roman Empire at that time in history who is Nero. The reason for that is look back again in verse 1. The beast rising out of the sea, which is where the beasts in Daniel rose out of the sea. The sea is an image in scripture of the Gentile nations. So the idea is this this enemy of the covenant people is going to rise out of the Gentile nations. And of course, the Roman Empire rose out of the Gentile nations. But when it rises, it's noticed to have 10 horns and seven heads. Horns in scripture generally refer to power or authority. And so in some sense, this beast is going to be connected to a tenfold expression of its power. And it's going to, in some sense, have seven heads. And what we find out later in the book of Revelation, I just won't have time to take you to the later portion, is that Nero himself is the sixth of these seven heads. Or this beast figure, because he's never named Nero in Revelation, the beast is the sixth of these seven heads. So the seven heads are what we know as the seven Julian emperors in first century Roman history. The seven Julian emperors were Julius Caesar was the first. Every other of that line that followed him also took the name Caesar and it became a title indicating that they are the emperor. So Julius Caesar was the first then Augustus Caesar followed, then Tiberius Caesar, then Caligula, who was himself an exceptionally wicked man, and then, um, uh, starts with a C. I'm stuck. Anyway, there was a, I'm sorry, what? Claudius. Claudius, thank you. Um, Caligula, Claudius, Nero was number six, and then Vespasian, who actually ordered the invasion of the city of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple is the seventh. So the seven heads have to do the seven Julian emperors of the Roman Empire and the ten, the ten horns, which are the, the source of its power and its authority, were, are the, the way that Roman Empire was structured in the first century, which was there were ten senatorial provinces and over each one of the provinces, in, including certain areas of the Roman Empire, there was a, uh, a provincial governor that was established to carry out the edicts of the emperor in Rome. So the, the emperor ruled from Rome, but it was really the provincial governors r directly over those areas that were enforcing the, the uh, beastly power of the Roman Empire. All right, so um, that's our second question. Who is the beast? The beast is Nero Caesar, uh, just like the 666 question points to Nero Caesar, but it also refers to the Roman Empire with him representing the entire emperor, empire. All right, I've got just enough time to do a quick version of the last question. Then what is the mark of the beast, which is mentioned in verse 16 and 17? Um, I'll just 
Let's see, I'll, I'll read 16 here. And it also, it causes, this is the second beast, it causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. And that leads into the, this calls for wisdom and the ca- calculation of the meaning of 666. All right, so again, I'm not looking for barcodes. I'm not looking for, now the current thing is implanted computer chips, like people, dispensationalists, typically believe nowadays because of the, the prevalence of the idea of, um, how many of you have heard of this uh, research being done by, um, who's the guy in charge of Tesla? I'm sorry, Elon Musk. He's doing experiments with something called Neuralink, where he's implanting chips in animals to try to, you know, make the animal's life better, theoretically. Uh, which, you know, it's just killing the animals. But bottom line is, the goal is eventually to be able to implant a chip in a human being and then to, you know, make us all smarter and more brilliant and have access to all the information in the world over the internet just by thinking about it rather than having to need a device like, uh, like the iPhone. Uh, so that's the current modern idea of the mark of the beast. Again, we're going back to how the entire book is introduced to us. We're talking about things that are soon going to happen, things where the time frame is, the time is near. So these are events being described here in verse 16 and 17 that had something to do with first century life, had something to do with Nero's influence over the empire, and had something to do with a warning to believers to not get caught up in this showing allegiance to the beast. So what is it that happened? What happened in the first century was, as I mentioned just a moment ago, the Caesar in Rome, Nero in this case, uh, decided to proclaim himself to be a god. And in proclaiming himself to be a god, the entire empire was required to fall into line with his new self-definition, self-identification. And there were uh, guilds throughout the economic world of the Roman Empire that, uh, you know, and the guilds formed around different things. Like there was a clothing guild, there's an agricultural guild. There were guilds for, for various aspects of the economy. There was a food guild, you know, farming guild, that kind of thing. And so in order to buy and sell as a, a recognized member of Roman society, it was required in those days to first if you're a farmer, you need to join the farming guild and go to the farming guild meetings. And what would happen at the farming guild meetings is, yes, they would end up doing practical business with each other and making contracts and and those kind of things. But the start of every guild meeting had to do with, there was an image of the emperor set up in the meeting hall and they were to offer a sacrifice to that image and publicly proclaim these words. Caesar is Lord. And if you were unwilling to offer that sacrifice and unwilling to make that declaration, you were not allowed to do business in the guild. And the guild controlled all of the business in that segment of the Roman economy. So what's happening here is a requirement to pledge allegiance to Caesar Nero as 
your Lord. Now, what do you think first century believers would do in reaction to that when the essential declaration of the faith in the first century was these three little words, which John emphasizes in the book of first John, and that is Jesus is Lord. So that the, the idea for the believer was, I can't call two individuals Lord at the same time. It's either Jesus is Lord or Caesar is Lord. It can't be both. I can't worship Caesar and then turn around on Sunday morning, worship Caesar all through the week for guild business sake. And then on Sunday morning, I turn around and say, well, no, but really Jesus is Lord and he'll understand that I need to call Caesar Lord for the rest of my life's practical needs. And so this was a huge issue for first century believers. And it came to a head with this idea of being marked. Now the question is, was it a literal physical mark placed on the forehand or the back of the hand, or was that a signification of something else? Okay, I just want to give you a couple of passages real quick. Turn with me back to Exodus chapter 13. This is uh, the event of the Exodus. Exodus 13. This is right after the Passover. The children of Israel are now leaving Egypt in chapter 13. And the Lord requires for his newly delivered people in the Exodus to celebrate what's just happened by celebrating a feast of unleavened bread. We're going to read chapter 13, verse 7. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. No leavened bread shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, and it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it, what is it? It, the feast of unleavened bread. It shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. What's between your eyes? Your forehead. That the law of the Lord may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. The Lord here is referring to the same thing that John later grabs by the Spirit of God, same Spirit inspiring both Exodus and Revelation, and applying it to the circumstances happening in the requirement to proclaim Caesar as Lord. What this feast did is proclaimed Yahweh is Lord. And the Lord didn't require the children of Israel to literally mark themselves on their foreheads or on their hands. Although later there did develop a practice among the Jewish people. And this is much later in history where they began to wear what Jesus referred to as a pharisaical practice of wearing what was called phylacteries. Have you ever heard of this? And so it was a little leather box containing one specific verse from the book of Deuteronomy. And it was tied to a, you know, it was attached to a leather cord and that box was to be worn by the faithful Pharisee on his forehead and the cord wrapped around the back of his head and tied there. And then there would be a second one that was worn on the back of the right hand and tied by a leather cord. 
Was the Lord talking about that here? The answer is no, he didn't require an actual marking of his people. He's saying, when you practice this particular feast, this feast of unleavened bread, you are pledging allegiance to me. And in that, you are being marked on your, the back of your hand and on your forehead. There's reasons for that. Forehead signifying everything that you think. Right hand signifying everything you touch, everything you interact with in the world around you is under the allegiance of the God that you honor by celebrating this feast. So what's happening in Revelation 13 is it's the opposite of that. It's a satanic kind of uh, uh, twisting of that in order to show allegiance to Caesar in place of allegiance to the Lord. Now, I won't have time to go into these. If you're taking notes, look at these passages on your own time. Revelation chapter 7 verses 1 through 4, the angel of the Lord seals the servants of God on their foreheads, but it's not a physical seal that can be seen by human beings. It's a spiritual seal that only God can see and, and the angels. Uh, Revelation 14, verse 1, same thing. The lamb and the father's names are written on the foreheads of the faithful, not in a physical sense that can be seen with natural eyes, but it's, it's marking that person as belonging to God and to the Lamb. Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, uh, the same thing. The Lord was bringing a judgment on the city of Jerusalem at an earlier time in Jerusalem's history, and the Lord sent an angel to put a spiritual mark on the foreheads of certain men. In this case, they are faithful men, who are not corrupted like the rest of the city of Jerusalem, and they're being marked for safety and protection when the Lord brings the judgment upon the entire city. Then look at Revelation 14.9, 16.2, and 19.20. That's 14.9, 16.2, and 19.20, all of which associate the marking with the worship of the beast, indicating this is a this is a spiritual mark perceived by the Lord signifying that that person either has allegiance to the one true and living God or they have given their allegiance to the Caesar who rules over the affairs of men in this world-dominating empire that was currently uh, controlling the buying and selling of the world. All right, um, we're at the end of our time for sure, and I I, I jammed a whole bunch of stuff into these three, but um, I did want to get back to our, our next study, Christ in the Old Testament, next Thursday night. Um, if I overwhelmed you and you're still wanting to talk about any of this, don't hesitate. Like I said last week, I actually enjoy talking about this stuff, not just teaching it. So I'm glad to interact with you if it will be helpful to you. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.